Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based film group headed by yours truly. And uh, as on this recording, um, recording this and the next episode, uh, which would be episode 111, um, The Inconfessible or Orgies of Emmanuel. Uh, these two I'm recording on October 13th, which is uh, my birthday. So I figured uh, I would have these two films playing today and would have different friends stopping in during the day, hopefully, and uh, might have them as guest reviewers on uh, this or the next episode. We shall see how the day unfolds. So uh, this is episode 110. Film 110, La Casa de las Mujeres Perdidas, The House of Lost Women. And uh, for some of you who've no- listened to the, f- to the show before, and for some of you who this is your first time listening to the show, I always uh, start off the show with the uh, brief introduction, and then we do the... Um, the um, review production notes and the the bulk of the information of the film which i always take from the two books by stephen thrower uh the delirious cinema of jesus franco um murderous passions and flowers of perversions volume one and volume two by stephen thrower and then uh, we do a little break and then after the break we i and solo or i and a guest reviewer come back and we talk about the film and go over things we saw and all that good stuff. So, yeah. Um, so, anyway, this is uh, another one of the Golden Films era. It was made in Spain, 1982. And the production company, again, is Golden Films International. Uh, theatrical distributors, Lauren Films SA. Uh, timeline shooting date circa summer 1982. Uh, they got the legal number on this, July 22nd of 82. Uh, Seville played in February 26th of 83. Then played Barcelona, May 26th of 83. And then Madrid, June 30th of 83. So it played quite a few places in 1983. Uh, let's see, running time, Spain, 90 minutes. And it says... Sex and sadism in that lovely house. All sorts of sexual apparitions between a mother and her stepdaughter. Came a hunter, took two rabbits, and left a stag. Writer-director, Jess Franco. Director of photography, Juan Solar. Cozar. Music, Daniel White as Papa Vila and uncredited Jess Franco. Song, Winter Sonata, written by Jess Franco and Rebecca White. Um, let's see... Uncredited camera operator Jess Franco, production manager Antonio Mayans, editor Jess Franco. Cast Lena Romay as Candy Coster. This is her Candy Coster blonde wig period now from here forward uh, for a while. She plays Desmedona Pantecorvo. Antonio Mayans plays her father, Mario Pantecorvo, a.k.a. Capitan. Carmen Carrion plays Dulcina Pantacorva Corvo. Um, that's the stepmother. 
uh, Susanna Carr, Kerr, K-E-R-R, I think it's alias, Susanna Kerr, plays Polova Pontecorvo, and Tony Robolo, as billed as Tony Skios, plays the stranger, a.k.a. Tony Curtis. I call him the hunter, because he's a hunter in the film, so... Uh, note the Spanish press book lists the family name as Mendoza. Dulcina, Dulcina is referred to as Carmen in the synopsis, but Dulcina is in the accompanying cast list. Um, I'm going to go over the production notes. I'm kind of going to skip the review because uh, after reading it before recording, uh, it's kind of some of the stuff I'm going to go over in my review watching it. So I'm just going to kind of weave my review and then some of his notes in, uh, some of Stephen Thrower's text in with mine and compare and contrast. And then um, then I'll read the connections and all that with this section. So this will be a little bit shorter. Um, all right, uh, production notes. Um, La, La Casa de las Morejes... Perdidas was based on a script idea that Franco had first put down on paper in the 1960s with celebrated screenwriter Jean-Claude Carré. In 1982, after trying without success to interest Carré in revisiting the text, Franco went ahead and filmed it anyways. I'll read a little bit of a few little things from the review that doesn't do spoilers um a precious nugget of daunting introverted bleakness from the golden films period la casa de las morejes predadas is a claustrophobic tale of incest and family member and family manners enacted by a tiny cast and set prominently in one cramped location it's a rare example of a Franco film with a domestic setting, and as the similarly themed Eugenie, 1970, domesticity for him means incest. The domestic life means for him incest. Uh, brooding, sick, and darkly funny, this is one of the strongest films of Franco's golden films, period, and providing you can adjust to its measured pace and minimalist aesthetic it's a strange and unsettling experience uh and from yours truly yeah i I agree um i watched it first with a friend uh this being her first franco film was a little bit strong for her and i don't disagree i was kind of uh, taken aback by the length of the sex in this film in the period i didn't think he would be this much in this film and um but I watched it a second time, and I enjoyed it more because I could pay attention to the dialogue and, and uh, the story, and, and I definitely better on a second viewing. But yeah, if you've first seen it raw without knowing much, it's definitely a strong film to take in on first viewing. Um, and then uh, let's see what we say here. Um, yeah, I'll kind of go over some of that later on with the review. Um Okay, let's see here what they write would fit in this section. Um, okay, 
let's jump all the way to music. All right, uh, music in this film. Uh, the piano theme by Daniel White, which reoccurs throughout the film, is a mournful variant on Daniel White's melody for the 1973 Franco film, Tender and Perverse, Emmanuel. The latter known as Eromantic, Eromantic Love on the Ambiazana Acoustica CD with just a dash of Frederick Gulda's theme for Necronomicon, 1967, thrown in for good measure. The Bordello Piano theme from Eugenie Historia de una Perversion makes another appearance during Desedemona's masturbation scene with a miniature statue of Venus. Location. Antonio Mayans recalls that this film was shot near Malaga. All right, connections to other things, the Franco universe, and everything else. Uh, connections. The name Desdemona derives from the Greek meaning ill-fated. So also there's demon in there too, D-E-M-O-N, demon e uh, Dulcina was the true love and muse of Don Quixote in Cervantes' novel, a woman fictional, fictionalized by the hero to suit his own romantic fantasies. From a farm girl into a princess, there's not a lot of true love on show between Mario and his Dulcina, but the suggestion of a man's fantastical enrichment of women of woman to match his own egotistic requirements is apt given Mario's fantastist tendencies fantastist tendencies uh, the name also has lexical roots suggesting excessive sweetness a no doubt deliberate irony giving the monstrous character of the mother in this film the stranger claims he is a fan of Mario Pontecorvo's, having admired his performance in the silent versions of Jeromin by Padre Coloma that introduced you as a great actor. Luis, a.k.a. Padre Coloma, was a 19th century novelist, biographer, and prolific writer of short stories, whose Jeromin, a biographical work about the 16th century Spanish nobleman Juan de Astoria was not, to my knowledge, adapted for the silent screen, but was first made into a film in 1953 by Luis Lucia. Regardless, the suggestion that Mario Pontecorvo gained his fame playing a character in silent movies suggests that he is supposed to be in his late 60s at least, which Antonio Mayans in the film is nowhere near. Uh, Franco once compared La Casa de la Mujeres Puratas to Bunnell's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, which, to give him credit, takes a lot of nerve. <laughs> the remark does make some, however. The, the remark does make some sense, however, given that the original concept for the film was laid out in a script written by Franco in 1965 with Bunnell's regular collaborator Jean-Claude Carré. Carré wrote... Carré co-wrote two films with Franco that year, uh, The Diabolical Dr. Z and Attack of the Robots. Ophelia, get thee to the nunnery, Mario tells Desdemonia, quoting Shakespeare's Hamlet as he suffers a mental breakdown. The remark, though basically just a fragment of any stage actor's repository of quotations, has, re has res 
has resonance with the incest theme, giving that, given that Hamlet, though speaking to Ophelia, was in truth exposing rage toward his mother for having married his uncle. The relationship between nymphomaniac Desdemonia and her retarded sister Palova echoes that of the sisters in Franco's similarly claustrophobic sex drama The Hot Nights of Linda, 1973, and also to uh, Sexy Sisters. Um, Desdemonia masturbates while watching Dallas on an unseen TV, although the dialogue we hear is improvised in the soap opera style by Franco's cast. And the music is the title theme from Botas Negras, Latigo de Cuero. This is the only Jess Franco film that mentions Margaret Thatcher. An unseen newspaper headline read out by Mario claims, bizarrely, that the British Prime Minister is getting married in Washington. In reality, Thatcher was married long before 1982 to her lifelong husband, Dennis. Dennis. Uh, Desdemona's habit of masturbating with a statue of Venus recalls the scene in Franco's Kiss Me Killer, 1973, in which Romay frolics nude with a statue of David and looks forward to a scene in El Oeste de Lula, Lulu, in which Romay enjoys a close encounter with an Oscar statuette. Close encounter. That's funny. Uh, Mayans can be seen reading the January 1982 edition of the Spanish film magazine Fotogramas. Other versions. Some copies of the Spanish video release, uh, Perversion en la Isla Perdida, ran just 59 minutes. Fortunately, a complete version was transmitted on Spanish TV in 2017. But, as we know, Severn put out a great Blu-ray, which is the version I watched, and uh, it's got all the good special features and a bonus CD of uh, Daniel White music and everything, In the Land of Franco, and, and all that good stuff, Stephen Thrower's On Location, and all the great things. So, All right, uh, hang out past the bumper, and you'll hear um, my talk with Lauren um, Lauren Hess, co-owner of the Dreamland Cinema here, um, co-owner and co-operator, uh, her and her partner Tish run the very cool theater here, and, uh, they play, um, just great films, like, for instance, here in Sacramento, California, uh, they're playing, like, uh, five Dario Argento films, Dario Argento and Daria Nicolaidi, uh, they play Deep Red, Suspiria, Inferno, Tenebrae, and Phenomena. And then they're playing for October, being Halloween month, Nightmare on Elm Street, Blood for Dracula, Night of Living Dead, Hereditary, Death by Temptation, Blair Witch, Knife Plus Heart, Jennifer's Body, Velvet Vampire, Alucarda, uh, Ringu. And they had a members-only screening for people that are film members which I am, and we got to watch the great Zulowski film Possession from 1981, I believe. Sam Neill and Isabella Gianni. It's one of my, like, I don't know, not top ten films, nothing like that, but I, I really do love the film a lot. And uh, Carlo Rambaldi's effects in it are just amazing. So, yeah, they showed that, and it was it was really, really great. So, And I'm always pushing to get a Jess Franco, and knowing me, of course, I'm always pushing to get a Jess Franco film shown there, and... Uh, each month, I'm always suggesting it, suggesting it. So, 
I'm hoping soon to get a Franco film, and I'll talk about it before the film, and uh, we'll see how that goes. But I will definitely let the Franco universe know about it, and uh, let people know that a Franco film is being screened for people to see. That'll be a glorious day, because to my knowledge, it's been many, many, many years since a just Franco film has screened in Sacramento, and I want to be the one that brings it, so... Uh, we'll see how that goes. So, anyway, hang out past the break, and uh, you'll hear Lauren and I talk about the House of Lost Women, and uh, that's going to be edited together with a further review of myself. I watched it a second time t- for all the notes and everything, and to do a better review for this episode of the House of Lost Women because I wanted to give it uh, the care that it deserves. So. Uh, hang out, and you'll hear what we think, and um, hope you enjoy it. And I'll also knock out the Franco list, because there is quite a bit on this list. Especially uh, the, uh, let's see, what number is that? Uh, number, oh, where's my notes? That's funny. Um, but anyway, you know, the topic is, uh, oh, here it is. Uh, number 16, masturbation with a letter C item and uh, this film definitely has a few scenes with masturbation with a letter C item uh, cigarette citrus so on and so forth so all right hang on past the break and uh, you'll have some fun boy snitches maha all right we are back with the Franco's over podcast and today we have a special guest reviewer, Miss Lauren Hess from the Dreamland Cinema, one half owner and operator of a very cool independent theater here in Sacramento that shows uh, cool underground films, art films, uh, new films, old films, um, everything in between. So um, it's a business I always uh, highly endorse. Uh, check them out on Instagram, Facebook, and online at the dreamlandcinema.com. Um, so today I have Lauren here, and this is her first Jess Franco film. So, Miss um, Hess, what did you think of the Jess Franco that you got to see, uh, the very incredible and bizarre House of Lost Women? Well, it was quite a film for my first uh, initiation. Um, lots of crotch. I got to say, <laughs> um, but beautifully shot. Um, I really love the location and all the actors and actresses were, were wonderful. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot more sex than I thought would be in it. And as a semi prude, my um, cheeks were red almost the whole time. <laughs> That's cool. No, I, I know this is, it's funny because I'm always, cause I have the, of course the weekly Franco deal. So it's like, the stream always flows and certain people will put their boat into the water at different parts in the Franco stream. And in this part, Lauren was a guest and she put her, her boat into the stream of this Franco, which is the gold films period, which there is a lot of sex in this in films in Franco films. But in this film, it was like every third scene was Lena uh, with the cigarette, with the orange, with the trophy, uh, very little clothes, uh, maybe a, a jacket would be the excess of it. But uh, yeah, it's cool too. also having somebody that's never seen a Jess Franco film filling her in on Lena and and uh, the gung ho actress she is and what she does. Um, what was your impression of seeing Lena for the first time? Oh, man, she just has like that charisma. Um, you know, her She's very expressive, but also just felt so um, 
like natural like she just is giving it her all and is there for whatever like the story and the film needs um and I love those kind of actresses so it was it was cool to see her for the first time yeah, she's uh, like I was filling you in on on her background and how she is, and she's definitely a muse for Franco, and and he and they're definitely a, a great team. Where he'll tell her to do something in the way of this film, and she'll do it, and he's reasonable with everything. And and him and her have done so much together and seen so much ground. By this time, jealousy is something that's out of the equation. Any kind of problems or something that's all just surface things, and you know you can work things out because you've already been through so much shit, and you realize that this is where you're supposed to be. And when you're in that path of doing what you're righteously supposed to be doing, other things like that just seem so trivial. And that's one thing as a filmmaker, I, I try to get from, from watching these films because they've helped me as a filmmaker as well. Like I was telling you how quick he makes films and turns around and stuff. And as a, as a musician yourself and as a film operator and everything, it's, it's cool to see somebody that has that hustle and has that go. It's always good to learn from them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, truly, if I didn't know the background of, of, I think this year it said he made like 13 films, 12 or 13 ish. Um, I would have never known because I, I felt like it, it looked good, sounded good. Um, I know you were commenting a lot on the music cause there's yeah. some like music that repeats, but as like a first viewer has never seen anything else. Um, you know, it's, it stands alone. So it's amazing that there's like 11, 12 more of these just this year. Yeah, you would think like something like this would make one or two films a year or something, and it's a regular studio project or whatever. Then you realize how minimal the things were and how many reusing pieces he used, music, locations, actors, a built-in crew. Uh, these films also have a very small cast. Like we made the remark about it's almost like Goldilocks and the Three Bears and the Hunter, and there's only five characters there. And there might be even be one more in the movie, and that's really all the characters there are in the film. Um yeah, it's very high camp, very uh, almost like a soap opera on steroids or something. You know, the everybody's exaggerated. The sex, the uh, infantilism, the dominatrix, the all the all the high camp midnight movie characters are almost on on full display here. So it's very much like a adult comic book or or something very over the top. I don't know. Did it remind you of anything that you've seen before? Or? Um little bits of and we kind of talked about this a little bit of you know john waters and um recently i've watched um andy warhol presents uh blood for dracula and so certainly with like the family dynamics just twisted family stuff uh that was apparent in this film so um just kind of like that that vein of just like beautifully shot but twisted um content also to uh Tish is a fan of uh, Andy Milligan and kind of Andy Milligan, the family incest angle with that too. I just thought of as we were speaking just now that I think she would probably appreciate that element of it that that much because it's very – when you have – you know, I mean, when you, as a writer, I mean, you can always write about family as your first thing, your memories growing up, mother, father, whatever, sister, brother, and you always draw off those stories as a thing. So whenever you finish writing all about the – Monsters and science fiction and the farthest reaches of the universe you can always go back to of a family element is almost a base, you know. So that's why I think a lot of filmmakers do that as well because it's a it's an easy story to tell, and you already have everybody knows a mom a dad, so there's characters and you could put your own spin on them and stuff. But uh, yeah, no, it's cool. I like uh, like I was telling you too the whole punk aesthetic of of Franco of doing things quick and cheap and and 
putting out a good product and just doing the next one and really not looking back. But, um, no, you know, and that's the thing. He's, uh, definitely very, very enjoyable. But, uh, and like I said too, if you don't like this film, there's always a thousand different styles of films he did and stuff. So, um, yeah, so I don't know. Um, any closing thoughts you thought of Franco or anything you want to talk about just Franco wise? Oh man. Uh, well, I definitely want to explore some of his other works. I mean, um, I think kind of more this, the sexploitation angle of this one is not maybe for me, but um, it makes me want to see what else he's got. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it was is a cool first movie to check out. Um, now I have a question for you. Um, is this film similar to any in his uh, past movies, or do you think is this like um, this whole concept, this island, this this messed up family... Well, this, I mean, it's funny. This is a very claustrophobic film, and a lot of his stuff is outdoors. That's why it's kind of, it's interesting, this period. Because as a filmmaker, he remakes a lot of films. But with this film, it's almost like he was trying to make a demented soap opera, because we see with them watching it and stuff, it parodies that. And the fairy tale that we caught with the Goldilocks and the hunter and the three bears of the house. So he's almost taking those elements and writing just a single location um, he has made other films before in a single location, and as a viewer, I don't like him as much because I like when he gets around and films cool places and cool architecture and islands and, and these red apartments and stairs and really cool stuff. And this is just kind of stuck in this house, so it's kind of like that with that. But um, but I like, like I said, as an artist, I like that he's trying to do something different, you know. Um, that whole dynamic of this with the sex element and... The incest angle he's reusing quite a bit during this period. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, this is it's kind of different. This is really different compared to a lot of his other stuff. So it's it's definitely similar in some respects because you always have Lena s- sexed up in a lot of films. Like, she's always sexed up but in a different element. It's like, like she's a, a sex machine, literally. And uh, But, yeah, but with this, it's definitely more the melodramatic. So it's similar but different, yeah, if that answers your question. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I, I, I definitely felt that claustrophobic. Like, you know, they're on an island. You know, they're ki- they're isolated, and yeah. so that kind of comes into play with um, just how weird they are. <laughs> See, and that's a good point. The island, I didn't catch that because yeah, the island. Okay, so during this period too, that's also a um, Marquis de Sade element that he puts in a lot of the films where the characters are on an island, so they're away from society. So you're your own family your own group your own society you're your own you're apart from everybody else and that pitched with this i forgot about them being on the island yeah totally because you don't really see the water you see it in the beginning of her walking the beach and thinking back but the majority of it takes place in that location so yeah definitely island he's reused that concept before as a placing yourself away from society aspect which i always dig you know and he always has these symbols in all of his films so it's definitely interesting so uh this film starts off with a nude lena on the beach um, so we have our nudity right off the bat there, get that out of the way. Like one second, there's not even that's the first shot we see. It's really cool. It's just her, uh, walking by herself, solo, kind of burnt out, reflecting on things that have been in her, in her life there on the island. Um, basically her and her sister and her stepmother and father are the only people that live on this island that's owned by the father, supposedly. And they just, they have only one house, and they're the only ones that live there. And you see her, Lena, on the beach, nude, and she doesn't really 
she's kind of burned out by the beauty because there's an old expression, even uh, paradise is just an address after a while. So, uh, yeah, she's kind of has that idea in her mind. Um, and uh, the family's alone on the island, like I said. They have one house on theirs. It's theirs. Um, and they are cut off from society, so it's almost like the Dasad element where they keep themselves away from everybody else so they can have their own deal. And uh, he he connects with the outside world through film magazines and the daughter does through TV shows and commercials and the family's very attracted to the entertainment aspects of the outside world and Lena by planes that fly over and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, through that. So I'm actually going to go through um, his synopsis and kind of mix it with my deal as I go through. Um it says, our, our guide to the world is uh, Desmonia Pontrevero, who lives with her retired actor father, Mario, her mentally handicapped sister, Palova, and her stepmother, stepmother, Dulcina. After a somber voiceover monologue from Desmonia, the story begins with her lounging around, half-dressed, her bedroom door wide open, masturbating in full view of her mildly embarrassed father, who hides behind a magazine and pretends not to see. Later, she masturbates again while spying on Mario having sex with Dulcina. And I'm going to go with that. Yeah, so th that's one thing about this film is there's just a lot of masturbation scenes and a lot of sex right up the front. You have Lena masturbating once, her first scene in front of her father, like he says. Second time, um, she's watching a soap opera and she's smoking a cigarette, which she can masturbate in front of her father, but she can't smoke, so she has to hide that. And she uh, smokes, puts a cigarette in her vagina and does that. And then she masturbates with a statue of Venus. Um, and, uh, yeah, so. Um, yeah, later, she makes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, she makes it clear that she desires her father sexually, demanding compliments from about her firm young breasts and telling him that he's far better looking than his idol, Ramon Navarro. Too self-absorbed to address his daughter's behavior, Mario greets the flagrantly incestuous overtures with half-hearted references to social stigma and disapproval. Uh, comically, although he thinks nothing of letting his daughter masturbate openly in the house, she must hide her cigarettes and smoke when she's alone. Sex is a constant presence in the household, and even mentally handicapped Palova is drawn into it. In a disturbingly farcical scene, Desdemonia teaches her sister to masturbate, and in a much darker sequence later on, we see Dulcina thrashing the poor girl. Yeah, so that's jumping ahead a little bit too much. Um, yeah, we have the... Uh, yeah, and then Lena... Um, so that was two times, and then Lena's nude uh, with the mentally challenged sister um, and then she's talking about the, showing her how to masturbate with her hands and it's it's a very bizarre scene and then we have a third time of Lena watching her mother and her stepmother and father have sex and it's done really well with the soundtrack because you hear like her heart beating and is very like she's turned on by that sensation and he goes into the rush of seeing the unknown and, and doing things unknown and, and that feeling of that. So that, that part was really interesting seeing how he filmed that interesting. And, uh, there's an interesting part where her father talks about a dream he had of the four bald men and a wind quartet. 
and it's about society and movement, and there's almost a, a sub-parallel meaning with that, so that that's a cool scene. Um, and then we have, um, yeah, okay, we talked about the, the, he talks about there with the, the nude mother whipping the daughter with the riding crop. Uh, he s- says she's teaching her a lesson, and uh, it's very bizarre, the, the sexual... Uh, um, and then later she has her Lena lick her feet. Um, uh, which is like her... Uh, oh, yeah, it's later on. But yeah, there's some between that. So yeah, she has a very way, interesting way of punishing the daughters. Um, let's see what else he says here. Um, Yeah her, yeah, her style of maternal discipline is relentlessly sexual after assaulting Pilova. She punishes the who's been watching her, making the girl lick her feet and uh, forcing her into mutual cunnilingus. More, yeah, that that's a bizarre scene. So she walks in and she and she has to lick her mom's feet. and the, So everything is done off the TV commercials too. They're all turned on by this TV commercial stuff. Um, before that, though, Lena has another masturbation scene, and she has an orange, and then she starts eating the orange, and then masturbating with the orange, and then eating the orange after she masturbates with it to uh, watching Dallas on the TV. We don't see it. We just hear dialogue, and they say Jr. and his daughter had a miscarriage, and it's just bizarre stuff, and she's masturbating to it. It's just like, what? And eating the... Uh, and, and, she, and I wrote, too, a little thing. As she's rubbing herself with the orange, it looks like she's playing a good playing the guitar because the way her hand goes up and down like she's playing a guitar like she's strumming I was laughing at that um, but yeah we have Dallas on the TV then a coffee commercial is what Lena's masturbating to so that's bizarre uh, this whole film is very very bizarre if you dig the bizarre vibe and go with it then it's a lot easier if not you're going to be just like what the fuck is this um, so yeah the fifth scene Lena walks in mom her mom catches her um, and then uh makes her like her feet and then she makes her give her head basically and she returns a favor and licks uh, her, uh, licks her bush and then the the magic tongue so Lena does the magic tongue for full display and there's a car commercial actually playing that scene and um, the Disco Monks track comes in and then stepmom licks Lena's boobs and her nipple licks her all over basically and then uh yeah, she raises the her dress above her head, and you don't see her face. It's, she's like hiding. It's very bizarre. It's it's inter- really interestingly filmed. Um, let's see. The the lonely isolation developing the Portakovas is subtly Sedean in emphasis, positioning the family unit as the ultimate castle of perversion. Mario owns the island, and there are no other residents. Provisions are brought to the island by boat every week. Within the dreadful isolation, Desmodonia has grown to be somehow kind and intelligent, albeit with an absence of sexual boundaries. The driving force of her incestuous transgression is enforced idleness. Boredom is the first thing we learn about her. As she surveys the beach and gazes at the rolling sea, her voiceover informs us that she has long since grown indifferent to the island's beauty. In fact, she hates the place, having been forced to live there since childhood. All that she has, by way of escape, are her fantasies about distant lands, inspired by the sight of airplanes flying over the island and the tacky stimulus of American soap operas and TV. Puberty has stoked Desmonia's loneliness and frustration even further. 
Her sexualized anger is evident when we see her rubbing a lit cigarette on the breast of a carved statuette of Venus and later another cigarette into the eyes of a face on a Toby jug. She also, came up well. yeah, she also masturbates with a slice of peeled orange. I'm no expert, but wouldn't that sting a little? Yeah, I think about that, too. She's using it as like a pain thing. Um, let's see. Uh, can I skip over some of that? Ba, 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 ba. Um, so he puts, as shocking as the subject matter is, some viewers may find the film's lack of urgency problematic. The plotting is as tepid or as Torpid, that's interesting. Torpid as the lives of the characters, and anyone looking for narrative thrills is advised to look elsewhere. Yeah, it's like a John Waters film, but even slower in some aspect. But Bunnell and Waters are similar. Um, on the other hand, if you're acclimated or acclimatized to the way Franco works, this eerie slow motion chamber drama is weirdly compelling. It is a chamber drama. Good call. Uh, the theme is entrapment and psychological bondage, and Franco captures the stifling nature of the subject very well indeed. It is a cynical film with very little joy or light, apart from the amusement one can glean from the brock sadism of the stepmother and the highly inappropriate family dynamics. Franco's uh, view of domesticity is scathing. The choice is between bourgeois surrender to a life mediated by trash culture, radio and TV shows, Twitter endlessly in the background, or a pressure cooker world of sexual perversion and incestuous abuse. The Pontecorvos wallow in both of these behavioral tar pits before the dam bursts and the patriarch's emptiness leads to the psychological implosion and the speedy departure of the stepmother. Yeah, so then we have the, uh, which kind of jumps ahead there. The stepmother in this, I thought, reminded me of uh, early Peg Bundy because she's got like the high red hair and there's a scene where she's wearing like a leopard shirt and it's like off one shoulder and she's wearing these black vinyl or black leather pants and high heels. And I was like thinking, oh, that's interesting. So the mom is like Peg Bundy and Antonio Mayans is like impotent in the film, an impotent father. So he's like Al Bundy. And then uh, Lena is like Kelly Bundy, the the really sexed up daughter um, that's, you know, wants to have sex with everybody and has blonde hair. Um, but, you know, the only difference is the mentally challenged daughter in the wheelchair. I don't know if you can put that as Bud Bundy, but I guess, I don't know, but three out of four ain't bad. So, yeah, I think those three, I'm not saying that Married with Children is stole from this film by any means, but if you look at those three, it's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, a nice little... Uh, facsimile there of things to come in the future for um but yeah so uh i was laughing too also there was a maxi pad commercial that was going on between lena and her mom's uh kind of lingus scene uh let's see oh yeah then the mom has sex with the hunter on the couch while the husband watches and whimpers uh through the door and the mom catches him and we see how he is and then um the hunter talks to the wife the wife leaves with the actually he's not the he's not a hunter he's a a journalist and calls uh, the father a failed actor. And there's a final scene on the beach, which I won't ruin, but uh, yeah, so everything wraps up kind of tightly and then the film goes about its unmerry way. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, let me see if there's anything else I want to see here on the, says that, uh, I'll kind of skip over some of that. Yeah. Okay, good. I think that's about enough on that. So yeah, you know, um, I did like it. Oh, wait, yeah, well, actually, before I get my final thoughts, let me read the Franco list. So, 
All right, Franco list for this film, uh, episode 110, film 110, House of Lost Women. Uh, number one, body of water. Yes, we have a body of water right in the very beginning. Uh, we see Lena walking across the beach, and then we see uh, most of the film is, takes place inside the house, but there are scenes when the boats arrive with supplies and when the journalist arrives and uh, a few scenes out to sea, which are very nice, the island and everything around it. Number two, sailboats. No, no sailboats, because there's no dreams, but planes flying over take the place of sailboats. But number three, boats. Yes, we have boats in the film, because we have sea and they bring the supplies to the island. Four, palm trees. Yes, of course. Number five, jungle sound effects. Uh, no jungles, but we have seagulls, but that's, you know, in the course of soundtrack sound effects. Number six, a chained up person. No, nobody's actually chained up in this. Um, the daughter, the mentally challenged daughter is in bed, but she's never like chained up or nothing. Uh, number seven, dance scenes on stage, stripping. Uh, no, this is actually one of the few Franco films that doesn't have a scene where a girl's on a stage stripping and people are watching. Uh, number eight, club scenes, dancing in a bar area. Nope, nothing like that in this one either. So all, like I said, all in one location, mostly. Number nine, jazz music. Uh, not really. There's piano and there's uh, more of the other music because by this time, 82, he's moved out of it a little bit, doing more of the um, different, uh, I guess, jazzy, maybe because he's reusing some of the themes from past films. But no, it's more like orchestra and, and instrumentals and stuff, but not as much jazz. Uh, maybe borderline or half. Uh, 10 excessive zooms. Yeah, there's quite a bit of zooms, especially with the masturbation stuff in it. Uh, 11 out of focus shots. Um, no. 12 mirror shots. Yeah, there's a cool one where the stepmother's putting on her makeup, and there's mirrors in Lena's room. Um, not too much on this film, but mostly the, the mother makeup scene is probably the main one. Um, the Lena one, a little bit, but not as much. 13, mind control theme. Um, originally I wrote no, but like I say, yes, because they're either in the control of, like he had, Stephen Thoreau had written, either sexual perversion or TV and radio, you know, so they're under that control. 14, magic tongue scenes. Yes, Lena shows the magic tongue on quite a bit in this film. She magic tongues the orange. She magic tongues the Statue of Venus. She magic tongues her stepmother's boobs and uh, vagina that we see. So, yeah, quite a bit of the magic tongue working in this film. Fifteen, red light. No, no red light scenes I caught. Sixteen, a sheepskin rug. No. Sixteen, B. <clears throat> Let me get ready here. Masturbation with a letter C item, which is an item that starts with the letter C, for instance, a clock or a or a cog, or a uh, cup, you know. Uh, this one, it has a C as in cigarette. Lena masturbates with a cigarette around her nipples and her vagina, and she smokes out of her vagina. And she masturbates with an orange, which is C for citrus, so she masturbates with citrus. And uh, a Venus statue, which is not a C. But a V, but no, not a C. So two out of the three C's in this. So, uh, yeah, C, I do. Yes, C. 17, 
mad scientist and servant. No, no mad scientist, no servants. Just the family unit and the outsider. Uh, 18, fish tank shots. No, no fish tank shots. 19, talking parrot, talking monkey, any talking animals. No, no, and no. 20, end credits, yes or no. Yes, it says Finn. 21, handwritten signs, notes, anything cheesy in this. Not that I caught, no. 22, spiral staircase. No, no spiral staircase in this. It's all flat level. Uh, 23, inept cops. Nope, doesn't figure in this. 24, belly chains. No, not at all. 25, kinks. Yeah, there's a lot of kinks in this film. There's uh, foot fetish, licking feet. There's uh, infantilism. There's... There's S&M with whipping with riding crops. There's uh, incest. There's quite a bit of uh, kinks on display in this film. This is El, El Gran Kinko. Uh, this this would give the, the office store Kinkos a run for its money, let me tell you. Hey, let me tell you. All right, number 26, great headboards. No, I didn't catch any great headboards in this film. Um, just the two beds pushed together, just standard. Almost looks like a hotel. 27, fear or desire? What is the theme on this? I would say, well, there's fear too with the father and stuff, but I would say desire is the overriding factor in this. It's always the desire, the sexual desire. 28, acoustic guitar player. Yes, the journalist is sitting on his bed for no reason playing an acoustic guitar, which I guess he must be there at the place because we don't see him bring it, and then he's on his bed playing it. so for Lena and finally 29 reading a book scene yeah we have the uh, father that's reading a uh, January 1982 edition of Photogrammas where he says oh Julio Iglesias is nominated for an Oscar so that's that's the reading book scene in this film so alright that's the Franco list for this film and uh, knocked all that out so yeah he definitely hit quite a bit on this um, time so so yeah my final thoughts on this is uh, I enjoyed it um, showing this film to a first time Franco initiate might not be the best idea which um, <laughs> I learned but uh, yeah uh, Lauren definitely dug it but it is uh, a film that is an acquired taste. If you like Franco films, and you're a big Franco fan, you'll dig this film. If you've never seen a Franco film before, I would not suggest watching this first because it's it's definitely not porno, but it's a little bit more than softcore, I think, and it's just quite a bit of sex. Sex is the overriding factor in this film, and a lot of masturbation with Lena and the daughters. I mean, there is a lot of humor in it too, but it's just there is a lot of sex element to the film. So if that makes you uncomfortable or if that's a little bit too strong for you, I would suggest passing on this film. But uh, if you dig kind of Bunnell or John Waters or Pedro Almovar style of humor, the black humor, bizarre family stuff like, you know, uh, Pink Flamingos has some of this or, you know, just a lot of the bizarre stuff, um, the Dajit. Dijit Charm of the Bourgeois, like he said earlier. That's banal, definitely, and that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, you know, I definitely dug it. I enjoyed it the second viewing more where I can watch it. I don't know. It's funny. Watching films with other people and watching them by yourself is two different things. Uh, I've always done 
by myself more over the last, say, 15, 20 years compared to before where I'd always watch with people. And it's fun to watch with people because you can make jokes and talk and things, but you, unless everybody's quiet watching it, you kind of lose parts of the story. So it's good to watch it by yourself again to fill in those missing cracks, you know. But it is good to watch with people as well to enjoy the communal experience and to, you know, inform and learn at the same time. So, yeah. It's my suggestion is to, uh, if you watch a film one time by yourself or with other people and something doesn't click right, watch it again the other way. And uh, that might change your opinion or further enforce your opinion. But, uh, yeah, I definitely, like I said, enjoyed it more the second time. And it took on more of a, uh, I I dug the quieter times and some of the slower things I missed the first time. So, yeah, I liked it. I would definitely recommend it. And, um like I said, with Kavats. So cool, cool. Well, so yeah. And as a Franco, uh, film lover, I'm always trying to, uh, pitch to get a just Franco film on the screen here in Sacramento. So maybe this wasn't a good choice to show the owner of a cinema for just Franco, but truth be told, there's some 60 stuff and 70 stuff. I think is safe to share. So we'll see if that gets programmed soon. So, uh, well, thank you, Lauren, for coming on and being a guest on the show. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and we will find a film to get on screen for sure. Um, I think we would maybe get in trouble for this one, um, <laughs> but I know that there's one out there. So Most definitely. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the Franco Observer Podcast. This is going to bring this episode to a close. Um I said recording this on my birthday and a day after my birthday. So from me to you, thank you very much for letting me into your ears and into your headphones and into your speakers for all these times. And uh, I will finish out the Franco films that I have. I still got about another, I don't know, 40, 50 episodes left. So we'll see where we go. So until then, I will see you again next week with another episode of the Franco Observer Podcast. Buenas noches, Maha.